welcome to the Values at Sea podcast. This podcast was developed with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council via the Southwest Doctoral Training Partnership, and it was produced by Sonia Levy and Ellis Jones. The purpose of this podcast is to give you an insight into some of the work that was presented at the Values at Sea workshop held at the end of April 2023 at the University of Exeter in the UK. The workshop brought together people from marine science with people from science studies, which includes philosophy, history, and the social studies of science, as well as lots of other disciplines. Each of the episodes features an interview with the person who attended the workshop, discussing their work and their relationship with the ocean in a bit more depth with me and Sonia. In this episode, we interview anthropologist of marine sciences, Professor Stefan Elmerich, a professor at MIT who has studied a range of different marine scientists and sciences. So to start, we thought we'd ask you whether you could tell us uh, who you are and what you do. I'm Stefan Helmreich. I am an anthropologist who studies scientists and have lately taken to studying oceanographers. And the way that I do that as an anthropologist is to do fieldwork, which means joining oceanographers in their laboratories, at sea, uh, in front of their computer simulation desks, and you know, the aim is to understand how they are composing their knowledges about what the ocean is these days. And these days are days in which the ocean is under increasing threat from anthropogenic climate change. These days are also days in which remote sensing is ever more important to producing a picture of the ocean. The ocean as a singular entity, I guess. I mean, I, I guess I could also say the oceans, right? And I think that that's part of what's interesting to me is how the how scientists are uh, conjuring, I guess they have been for a while, conjuring a picture of the, of the world ocean as a kind of, as a unified entity, which they do through understanding it as kind of climate control for the planet, as um, a series of interconnected currents, um, as, in some sense, a giant uh, microbial genome. <laughs> My early work on the ocean was to do with biological oceanographers who were coming to see the ocean newly as a, a zone of um, overflowing and networked microbial life. I guess in many ways what I'm interested in is, yeah, the science of the contemporary ocean and what makes it contemporary, but then also thinking, too, about how the stories that scientists tell about the ocean inherit much longer term visions of the sea as, for example, sublime or frightening or mysterious or deep or dark or life-giving or death-dealing. According to your work, what is the ocean and how does it manifest itself in your in your research? Well, because I'm an anthropologist, um, I guess the first draft answer would be that the ocean is is cultural. The ocean is many things um, on its own, 
and in most Western epistemology has been assigned to the realm of nature or the natural. But I'm very interested in how even in that construal of the sea, scientists are persistently thinking about the ocean through narratives, through symbolism, uh, through you know, ongoing myth-making practices. So that's one thing. And then with respect to the kind of work that I do, the ocean is also a scientific object. It's a cultural object and it's a scientific object for the people about whom I write. And well, it manifests itself again, I keep saying this for the people I write about. Um, so part of what the ocean is for me is what it is for them. I'm very interested in learning what today's scientists uh, imagine the ocean to be. And I guess I think about that historically too, that, you know, in the, if you think about the history of oceanography predominantly in European American Atlantic kinds of worlds, a little bit Pacific, um, the ocean starts for oceanographers in the middle 19th century as a kind of abyssal space and with its deeps and darks imagined as lifeless and azoic. That picture gets complicated in the late 19th century when um, in the wake of laying of submarine cables, the ocean is revealed to be kind of full of life. Um, and, but even then, there's still a vision of the ocean as kind of a storehouse of evolutionary pasts, um, as though the deeper you go, the farther back into the Earth's memory and the past you travel. And that has not necessarily gone away as an imaginary. So deep sea hydrothermal vents, for instance, are, are often understood as kinds of archaic and primal ecologies even though many of them, in fact, are only decades old, right? Um, but they are associated with kind of lost worlds and um, elementary forms of life, I guess. Um, so at the same time that all of those things are being understood through these newly high-tech kinds of um, access technologies like submersibles and remotely operated vehicles and GIS stuff and digital imaging. So I guess the ocean is, maybe it's a collage. It's a collage that's made by the scientists out of, you know, their latest collaging materials, which are things like genomics, bioinformatics, remote sensing, uh, computer models. Um, and that's what the cultural ocean looks like for them now. Um, there's many, many other oceans that are not the scientific ocean. And you've kind of moved from different versions of these oceans then as, as you've been going through the, the work you've been doing. Yeah, so my, my first ocean book, Alien Ocean, uh, Anthropological Voyages and Microbial Seas, was very much about transformations in biological oceanography, and in particular, the rise of um, a field that used to be called marine microbiology, but then kind of rebranded itself as microbial oceanography, so that the microbes were not just in the sea, they were the sea, the sea is made of them. Um, and 
So that was a very, I mean, that still exists as a ongoing field of inquiry. I feel like that's a very biotech ocean in a way, like in the wake of things like the various genome projects in the 1990s and early 2000s, um, we get an ocean that looks a lot like, uh, you know, the ascendant biosciences of the turn of the millennium, right? Where the oceanographers who had been kind of laboring in this world of um, old-fashioned field science, they started using DNA sequencers and flow cytometers and phylogenetic uh, computer programs to kind of do to the ocean what was being done to animal genomes. And so that's, it sort of started there. And then this newer work that I've been doing, which is forthcoming in a book, which is called A Book of Waves, that book is about physical oceanography, which is in some sense a kind of older tradition or a founding tradition in oceanography, and certainly a dominant one during the Cold War. The ocean that I'm interested in now has that kind of lineage in Cold War physics, as waves become objects for physicists to think about. But inevitably, um, the story connects back up to climate transformation in the present day with waves as kinds of tokens of sea level rise, of uh, storm surge. There's really an interesting way in which waves become kind of avatars of a encroaching and endangering future. So when did you start to really think and care about the ocean? Was there a moment in your life you can remember doing that or has it always been um, kind of there for you? I think it's always been present because I've lived in coastal areas. So, I mean, it's about, it's a coastal, it's a story of coastal encounter, first and first of all, right? So I grew up in a combination of the East and the West Coast of the United States. So the Atlantic and the Pacific. And um, it's hard to narrate what it was exactly about it that fascinated me in the pre-PhD uh, time. Because <laughs> now, you know, my vision of the ocean is just covered with lots of jargony theory words. Um, in California, I took to body surfing and came to think about the ocean as a space in which to in which to swim. Uh, swimming is an important part of it, which is part of a kind of uh, white American middle class kind of beach holiday uh, social form. Something interesting I noticed during interviews I conducted as part of my PhD with different coral scientists um, was that a lot of the marine biologists I spoke to were kind of very interested in spending time in the sea and in marine activities. One of the people I spoke to was a taxonomist, and it was immediately apparent that the way they engaged with the sea was very different. So they were talking about being interested in collecting things, but not really liking spending much time in the sea. So there was less of this kind of marine um, identity there. So I think in the case of marine biologists, you get this kind of I noticed anyway, this interplay between liking being in the sea and studying the sea in certain ways. Um, is that something you've noticed, for example, in differences between biologists and oceanographers? I think it's certainly the case that many oceanographers these days come to their science through a kind of personal narrative that's very much about uh, being in the sea. And seaside vacations figure prominently. Um, 
which also proposes the meta question of why people feel obligated to tell a story that's biographical, right? Because that's that's also a certain genre, right? Of kind of turning one's biography into a synecdoche or a metonym for, you know, interest in the ocean itself, right? As though one kind of stands for some kind of universal human um, apprehension of what the ocean is, which is an extremely class and national and race specific kind of um, iteration, right? Um, so maybe I'm trying to uh, both answer and evade your question or answer as well as kind of contextualize the question. So um, we are generalizing the ocean here, so I apologize, but <laughs> this is for the sake of the simplicity of our question. Uh, do you think the ocean, the way it has been understood and studied in the West, has shifted throughout your career? And what do you think have been the drivers of those changes? I feel like my career is very short. Um, I mean, I, I just told you a little bit about my own thinking of the relation between biological and physical oceanography. But I suppose, you know, one of my answers would be to reiterate what I said earlier about the technologies that the scientists bring to bear as having transformed what they understand the ocean to be. Um, yeah, I guess the technologies also produce a sort of set of metaphors, right? So that the ocean is now understood to be kind of a network of genes um, that connect to each other. So it's kind of like a World Wide Web, um, to use the 1990s phrase. So I guess, yeah, there's a technological story. So certainly things like computer simulation have become incredibly important for understanding what oceans do and are. There are a number of projects in digital representation of the sea. There's something called the digital twin of the ocean and there are digital doubles of the ocean. And so I think that there's a, a way in which the ocean as a whole has been kind of sucked up into the computer uh, for the scientists who, who wish to study it, which is actually, it's, it's, kind, it's, it's interesting to think about this maybe next to um, the rise of Google Ocean. Uh, Google Earth, which begat Google Ocean, was pretty early on criticized for the inadequacy of its representation of the ocean. Right? Google Ocean you know, had this kind of glitchy map of the seafloor and then a little bit of the sea surface and then kind of nothing in between, which made all the oceanographers grumpy because like, well, the ocean is, that's where everything's happening is in the so-called water column. And there's no good digital representation of that in something like Google Ocean. And so I think a lot of the computer simulation work that oceanographers have been doing has been to try to fill in all of that stuff and bring all of the dynamics of the undersea into focus. So I think a lot of the transformation has been about, yeah, this, this kind of relatively novel mode of representation, namely through computer simulation and visualization. Has the ocean forced you to think or do research differently? And um, how so that's the case? Well, doing ethnographic fieldwork about oceanographic fieldwork 
which has pressed me to kind of go to sea with scientists, um, certainly makes me think about what anthropological fieldwork and science studies fieldwork looks like um, in those settings. Now, in some sense, the setting of a ship or a research vessel is a is a rather canonical kind of anthropological or sociological um, kind of setting because it's isolated and it's a finite community of people that are kind of in one place. And so very old school kinds of social science tools are not difficult to use. You know, you can draw a map of the entire thing. You can try to figure out what everyone's doing. And it's a very stereotyped social circumstance in which people have roles. And so in some ways, there's a way that the ocean is, or the way that it's not the ocean, right? It's it's the way that scientists access the ocean. In some ways, it's a kind of a throwback to to very early kind of anthropological grids of intelligibility that are put onto, say, islands, right? Because the the research vessel is a kind of mobile island. At the same time, um, there is something about being at sea that for the scientists that they find compelling and important. Now, some of that might be a kind of expeditionary heroism, which is a phrase that the historian of oceanography, Naomi Oreskes, uses, right? The idea that to be an oceanographer is to be, you know, engaged in this kind of difficult uh, physical work and presence at sea. Um, so some of it might be that. And some I, I would say that some people already encounter that as a kind of nostalgia for how things used to be, because in many ways, one doesn't need to go to sea in order to understand a lot of things about it because of remote sensing kinds of tentacles that might be available. At the same time, that being at sea, not surprisingly, confronts you with things that happen that you didn't predict, right? The ways that all of the dynamics you might be interested in kind of come together in all these contingent ways, right? If you have if you only try to access the sea through remote sensing and you have a set of devices that are meant to measure particular things like conductivity, temperature, chlorophyll concentration, all those things, you might miss all this other stuff that's happening, right? And so going to sea is a kind of empirical check on that. And that's certainly been the case every time I've been out to sea with scientists is that things happen that they don't expect I mean, interesting things, and then also really annoying things. Like everything breaks in the ocean too. That's also interesting, right? That people go out with a set of plans about what they're going to do, and they usually get about like half of it done because they spend some of it like being seasick, or you know, a rope breaks and something they're trying to use as a temperature probe just drops to the bottom of the sea, and they lose it forever. And you know, there goes fifty thousand dollars of your National Science Foundation grant. So there's something also kind of not surprisingly and continuingly recalcitrant about it. Have certain sensory elements prevailed in Western knowledge production of the ocean? And how have these accesses to submerged epistemology changed over time? 
And what did this mean for scientific and political comprehension of the ocean? Certainly in the history of oceanography, the, the sensory mode that has both dominated and been um, desired is, is a visual one. And more than just a visual one, also a kind of synoptic one that wants to see a lot of things at the same time. And so, you know, the, the idiom of the map is very important. So, and the visuality of the map. Um, and yeah, and I guess also the scale of the map, you know, to sort of reduce the ocean to a map that can be taken in by an individual or a group of people as, a, as an object to um to kind of command optically right i guess this is the this is the donna haraway god trick right um and again i guess google ocean is a kind of apotheosis of that right where you can see so much of it that you could shrink it down to a little globe on your on your computer screen and then spin it around right so it's not just seeing it but it's also seeing it as though you are gigantic <laughs> um but that visual thing has also then led to um, pronouncements about that which cannot be seen as dark and mysterious, right? That below the photic zone where light travels, the ocean is understood to be a space of darkness, and that that is epistemologically challenging, sometimes even threatening or confusing. Um, so I think that, you know, in response to some of that in the early to mid 20th century, technologies of sonar and the use of sound um, come into play as additional sensory modes of understanding what's happening in the deep sea so that submarine pilots and passengers start to listen to the sea from within it and try to use auditory knowledge to create a sense of what it is as a space and that's also then participated in the in the worry that it is a space of mystery and confusion right because the um you know there's a number of extremely interesting stories about early submariners listening to the sea and having no idea what they're hearing are they hearing unknown sea creatures? Are they hearing enemy submarines? Are they hearing cracking, crackling shrimp? All of those things kind of produce this kind of swirl of confusion. And, and where is the sound coming from? And how fast is it coming? And how big is this space anyway? Uh, one thing that's interesting about the history of sonar is that eventually all these things start to become visualized. So they're dragging this auditory kind of uh, stereophonic um, sound knowledge into the realm of the visual to um, to try to capture it and understand it, right? So that no one needs to listen to sonar anymore. Sonar is still used, but it's kind of instantly visualized. Like, yes, this is the map. Um, so I think that the dominance of the visual has been um, persistent. And then sensory elements like touch or taste or the smell, kind of more body proximate kinds of things, as they're understood in Western epistemology, um, have been kind of relegated to the realm of the the biographical or the or the anecdotal. I guess one interesting way to talk about engaging with the sea is touch. So 
uh, Wild Swimming, I think, has seen a big increase in popularity in the UK, kind of during and since the lockdowns. And there's a lot of stuff on social media over the last few years about kind of cold water submersion and things like people like Russell Brand uh, and Wim Hof, the, the Iceman, are often promoting things like that. Um, so it seems like there's a lot more focus in the last couple of years on these two modes of kind of touching the sea and interacting with with water. Yeah. At the same time that those have a social kind of um, condition of possibility. But what you point to is interesting to me because it does seem to kind of page back to the actually earlier moments in British history. The rise of, of the water cure and the beach vacation and um, of bathing in places like Brighton, right? So, and bathing, which is not swimming, right? Like, so I think, you know, middle-class Victorian folk, you know, showed up at the beach with the idea that the waters were healing, but they needed to be kind of approached cautiously and in a kind of quasi-medicinal mode. And maybe you could even drink it, right? I think there's stories about, you know, Charles Darwin drinking salt water to see if that was going to be helpful for some health maladies, right? Um, and that early, right? I mean, people had to learn how to swim, right? And this is a whole a whole moment in, in the 19th century of a lot of Europeans kind of learning to swim and to head to the seashore as a space of kind of meditation and sublimeness and, and um, you know, salutary vacations. Um, but they weren't swimming yet. So there's, there's that. So what's, what's new, I guess, maybe is, is the wild swimming, right? Is that, well, of course we can swim now. And so there's sort of a return to the water as a, as a space of, of healing, but with this kind of new formation of, I don't know, a certain kind of, um, common sense athletics, right? I mean, people don't really realize that when they swim, that there's a history to that. There's a history to knowing how to swim and learning how to swim in certain ways. There's an amazing thing that the anthropologist Marcel Mose wrote in his work on techniques of the body about how he swam and how the younger people around him swam. This is like, I think he wrote this in like the 1930s or something like that, where, you know, he's realizing that his generation of, uh, of middle-class French people um, swam in a certain way. And he compared it to like being a steamboat and kind of having to go underwater all the time and gather water in your mouth and then spit it out. And then he's looking at the younger people like they don't, they're not doing that. They're doing something else. And so he got the sense like even the thing that you sort of might believe is a kind of Bordeauxian habitus that you don't think about has a kind of sedimented history. According to your experiences and work, what's missing um, for a more encompassing understanding of uh, oceanic worlds? And that could be ecologically or, or sociologically. Well, I think it's important to kind of think simultaneously about the ocean, but also oceans, and to think from different oceans. 
So, you know, some oceans and some spaces have become models for other places to the detriment of thinking about local regional difference. So, for example, in the work that I've done with wave scientists, a lot of what wave scientists think about how waves operate comes from work that um, German and Danish and Dutch oceanographers did in the 1960s and the 1970s in the North Sea. And so the North Sea and its wave patterns have become a kind of reference point for understanding how wave patterns work in general, which, you know, and the claim is that, well, physics is universal, waves are physics, but not surprisingly, transposing models of how waves work from the North Sea to, for example, the coast of Brazil or the Bay of Bengal in Bangladesh, India, kind of um, reveals that those are in fact quite parochial wave spectra. So what's missing is thinking from very different regions and trying to refuse the idea in some ways of universal truths about the ocean, right? Because um, so many of those are very, very specific to where the experiments were done, who was doing them, what they cared about. Certainly the separation of water from land works differently in different places, right? So on the coast of Brazil, for example, there are a lot of rivers that give into the sea. And so there's a, there's, there's a lot of mud that shows up in coastal regions. And so even what is, what is materially constituting a wave differs in different places, right? There'll be places where it's really, there's a lot of silt or a lot of sand, um, and there'll be places where there's less, right? And so I think one of the things to do is to think about that. There's a lot missing. <laughs> I mean, the ocean is history, which is what the poet Derek Walcott said, right? And thinking about what kinds of histories the ocean holds is, well, I mean, a lot of oceanographers know this, but I think it could be brought into further public view, I guess. So things like you know, the radioactivity that's present in many portions of the world's ocean is a historical effect of nuclear detonations in the 1950s and 60s. That is missing from a lot of accounts of what the ocean is and is made of. I mean, oceanographers are both very specialized and very interested in being interdisciplinary and thinking across different domains. And maybe, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but I was going to say the ocean is full of fish, and it's important to remember all of these constituents of what the ocean is together, right? So that um, sometimes what's missing is a kind of holistic picture of how things like ocean currents connect to uh, the travel of fish populations. Now, there's some people for whom this is kind of what they do all the time. It's not missing at all. Um, but I think depending on the questions that people are asking in different places, some of those things can drop out. I remember being surprised fairly recently seeing that um, there had been some models um, produced or some evidence produced to, to show that the movement of fish in the sea had like a much more significant impact on the movement of nutrients than, um, than was previously thought. And that, I mean, that's interesting, especially when you consider how much less fish there is now than there than there probably was um, a few hundred years ago too. So there's yeah that kind of um, biological geological interface I think is um, 
it's very interesting. According to your research, what do you think the ocean is becoming? Or to put it otherwise, how is the research in marine biology and physics you examine shaping oceanic futures? I think the ocean is becoming the future. And I think that that's an observation that, that is compelling to both oceanographers and to people in the ocean or the blue humanities that the future of the world, because of climate change, is more oceanic. And therefore, the ocean itself kind of comes to stand for a certain kind of futurity. Um, the future is coming. And I think one of the things that has been fascinating for me about the work I've done with ocean wave scientists is how much the figure of the wave stands for the coming future, right? So wave science has been dedicated to wave prediction. That's kind of what it does. And insofar as it does that, wave science is all about time. And because it's all about time, it's about horizons of expectation. It's about one's loyalty to certain kinds of time and sort of kinds of futures. So national futures, coastal futures. Uh, infrastructural futures, climate futures. Um, one of the interesting things that I learned in the course of this research from some of the scientists was that with climate change, that waves, particularly in the southern oceans, are getting stronger because of increased wind strength um, and getting taller, right? So the, the waves getting taller and getting stronger and getting faster is kind of like a, a sign of the future coming too fast, right? It's kind of, I keep thinking of Walter Benjamin's angel of history, right? It's like the, the angel of history. Well, I guess Walter Benjamin's angel of history is looking backwards at time, right? As the ruins of modernity kind of pile up in front of the horrified um, angel of history, like in the Paul Clay painting. Right. And, and the wave is kind of like the opposite of the angel of history. It's coming toward us. Right. So I think oceans are the future. And certainly the way that climate change is talked about for low lying ocean states, right, like Micronesia, the Maldives, lots of places in the, the Western Pacific. You know, the, the kind of soundbite is that they are already living in the future that is coming for everybody is itself a kind of speech act. You know, I don't think we want to take that as an obvious thing. I guess I'm not saying that the ocean is literally the future. I'm saying that's an extremely powerful narrative that um, the scientists are telling. And it's an interesting transformation from, for example, the 19th century vision in which the oceans are the past. The ocean is a remnant of the chaos of creation. The ocean is a remnant of Noah's flood. The ocean is old. And yeah, there's all kinds of 
sort of mythological stories about, you know, Poseidon is an old man and the sea is this kind of wizened figure. And now we've got this other thing, right, which is where the ocean is the future. And I think that's also not coincidentally connected to the way the ocean has become for so many people a scientific object. And scientific objects are, are futuristic. Thank you. That was pretty great. I, um, yeah, it makes me think a lot about also this. Because you, you were referring to Benjamin, but I was thinking how you were talking before about how it also, time is different somehow in the ocean or feels different, like the idea of holding time in the ocean or the past and history in the ocean. So in some ways, the wave that is coming, it's also very charged with the past. That's true, right? Because the wave is also carrying the sins of the past. And it's, it's also the Freudian return of the repressed, right? Which is, I've written a little bit about very large waves in movies. And it's almost, almost universally the case in a disaster movie that the wave that comes is meant to punish the characters for some kind of um, violation of of the norms of social justice, usually, right? You know, or just human overreaching. And the fact that the waves in many of those movies are hitting very large cities is not a coincidence, right? Now the wave comes from New York. Now it comes for Mumbai. Now it comes for London, right? So it's like the apotheosis of human cultural overreach is going to be tamed by the ocean. Do you sometimes dream about your research or about marine environments? I think I do, but I don't really have a good narrative about it. You know, because my, my dreams don't come very, my dreams don't have a very good writing team on them. They're more <laughs> a swirl of images. I do have, I do have a lot of dreams about large waves. That's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening to the Vise at Sea podcast. This podcast was developed by Sonia Levy and Ellis Jones with support from the Economic and Social Research Council via the Southwest Doctoral Training Partnership.